1973, 50 years ago this year, the Barbarians scored one of the great tries of the game in a match against the visiting All Blacks. As we shall see, it was a try with many beginnings. One of those beginnings happened at the beginning of the All Black tour in the small Welsh industrial town of Llanechli. This is the long and fascinating story of a great try. Welcome to the Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. Just before the Barbarians played against the All Blacks in the traditional end-of-tour fixture in January 1973, the veteran rugby commentator Bill McLaren told his employers, the British Broadcasting Corporation, that he had flu. He was feeling a tad wonky. Sorry, he wouldn't be able to jump in behind a microphone and do his thing. McLaren's absence tipped the BBC into a bit of a tizzy. Who could they get to replace him at such short notice? Everyone loved Bill. He was becoming a bit of an institution. The Barbarians versus All Blacks game would be played before a full house. The Barbarians, who played their first ever match in 1890, were famous for shedding their inhibitions and playing running rugby. The match was a sort of Olympian ideal. Rugby plus off-the-cuff brio equals big fun. It would be played in a festival atmosphere. The BBC needed a commentator equal to the task. After much scratching of chins, they plumped for Cliff Morgan. Morgan was the dazzling Welsh fly-half who had toured South Africa with the 1955 British Lions, scoring a memorable try in their 23-22 opening test victory at Ellis Park and captaining the side in the third test. As a former player with a turn of phrase to match his turn of pace, Morgan was someone who had romped in the Garden of the Gods. He would honour the fixture. He was just the man. The mandarins of the BBC felt slightly more reassured as Bill nursed his hot toddy. Despite his growing status as the voice of rugby, McLaren was never top-notch as a player. He had trialled for Scotland on the flank before being stricken with tuberculosis after the Second World War. The illness put pay to his rugby career and he spent 19 months recovering. While recuperating in hospital, he received doses of the experimental drug streptomycin, an antibiotic still in its infancy as a cure for tuberculosis. Several of McLaren's fellow patients died of the illness, but miraculously, he survived possibly because the sanatorium in which he was nursed was in the little Scottish town of East Fortune. As he recovered, he began to commentate. For a lark, he commentated upon the hospital's table tennis competitions on the in-house radio service. He found he had flair. Others thought so too. Like table tennis players the world over, he put a certain spin on things. He served up his sentences in a thick Scottish burr. The punters loved it. In the early 1950s, McLaren moved from print journalism into radio broadcasting. Later, he brought what was essentially a relaxed radio sensibility and conversational style to the growing medium that was television. Over time, he became a national institution with a highly original turn of phrase. 
if the number of mildly sozzled pub wags you inspire is the highest form of flattery, then we can take it as given that McLaren was much admired. Morgan was a different proposition. His commentary was that of a gifted former player who understood the game from the inside. Someone who played first for Wales shortly after leaving school, Morgan was the progenitor of a tradition, the dynasty of gifted Welsh fly halves. After him came Barry John, central to the British and Irish Lions' victory in New Zealand in 1971. After John came Phil Bennett, with legs as white as milk and an air of snap-in-half fragility. Thing was, Bennett had a step that could cut a team in two, like a panga going through a pineapple. In a rugby historical sense, Morgan was the father of them both. It was entirely appropriate then that Morgan and Bennett should be on hand to combine through voice and rugby brilliance in what has been called the try of the century. It happened 50 years ago this year, and it happened early on in the game between the Barbarians and the All Blacks that McLaren was meant to be behind the microphone for. There are several versions of the try available on YouTube, some short, some a little longer. As far as I can tell, the essence of the move lasts 34 seconds. 34 seconds that thrilled and continue to thrill the rugby world. All are worth watching and all are worth clapping your hands to and watching and listening to more than once. Share them with your friends just to remind them of how outrageously beautiful rugby played with flair and ambition can be. The sequence will bring good cheer to your day. So, how did the try to outscore all tries come about exactly? Well, I'll tell you. After a successful all-black line-out, all-black eighth man Ian Kirkpatrick funneled the ball to Brian Williams on the wing without the intervening role of his scrum half, Sid Going. Williams did the only sensible thing he could do after he found himself hemmed in. He hoofed a diagonal kick deep into the barbarian's half, where it was collected by a smartly retreating Bennett in his red Klenechli socks. With the bouncing ball safely gathered, the barbarian's fly-half Bennett had some fun. With a front of black-shirted New Zealanders bearing down on him, Bennett jinxed past not one, not two, but three of them, before passing the ball to his fellow Klenechli man, J.P.R. Williams. Williams, the Klenechli fullback, was scragged around the neck by his namesake, Brian, charging up in defence of his diagonal kick, but managed to get the ball away one-handed to England hooker John Pullen, who had to concentrate because Gareth Edwards was standing so close that he nearly got in his way. Pullen quickly passed outside of him to the Barbarians' captain, John Dawes. Dawes, the Welsh centre, spotted an opening. He galloped downfield at good pace. Sensing opportunity, Dawes accelerated his way towards the halfway line, outstripping the cover defence with a crafty dummy. When he could sprint no further, he passed the ball inside to Klenechli man Tom David, who ran 20 metres, before passing to his club and Welsh teammate Derek Quinnell, thundering up alongside on wobbly legs like a newborn giraffe. David's pass was made one-handed, with the palm of his right hand, and was long and accurate, made as he fell after being tackled. Quinnell had to stretch to grasp the ball, but managed to do so, just, 
as he picked it up somewhere close to knee height. By this stage, Edwards, who earlier in the move had almost managed to get in Pullen's way, was ranging up on Quinnell's outside. There was nothing in front of him but the corner flag, a couple of panic-stricken all-blacks, and the tri-line. He had, of course, to receive the pass from Quinnell first, and here we can only praise Quinnell's rugby intelligence because, although Edwards was outside of him, so too was left-wing John Bevan. The thing was, Edwards was belting, whereas Bevan was jogging at half-pace. Edwards collected Quinnell's pass when he was at full steam. Quinnell shoveled the ball to him with one of his two big mitts, and the curly-haired Edwards was away. After a brief second of skating along the sideline, Edwards scored in the corner, diving full length to do so. The entire passage of play took 34 seconds, a more astonishing 34 rugby seconds has seldom been seen. In the commentary box, Morgan was as sublime as what he described. His commentary is so full of awe and respect, it is worth quoting in full, and I quote, Phil Bennett covering, chased by Alistair Scown, brilliant, oh that's brilliant, John, John Williams, Brian Williams, Pullen, John Dawes, great dummy from Dawes, to David, Tom David, the halfway line, brilliant by Quinnell, this is Gareth Edwards, a dramatic start, oh what a score, oh that fellow Edwards, if the greatest writer of the written word would have written that story, no one would have believed it, that really was something. And so it was. That really was something. The rugby world could only marvel and shake its head and wonder if they had been seeing things. One of the early chapters in the story of the try no one would have believed was written on that self-same All Blacks tour by Bennett's club site Lenechli, who hosted the New Zealand visitors at Strady Park on October the 31st, 1972, at the beginning of their three-month-long tour. Flanetli in West Wales, west of Swansea, was a town full of heavy industry in 1972. Steel was produced there, smelted with Welsh coal, and so was tin plate. It was said to be the largest Welsh-speaking town in Wales, and many of Flanetli's players spoke Welsh on the field, so as not to be understood by visitors such as the All Blacks. It was a partisan town, given over to heavy industry and to heavy drinking. Rugby was an institution. Flanetli were coached by Carwin James. James was a soft-spoken, chain-smoking Welsh intellectual. As coach of the British Lions, he was the architect of the Lions' victorious tour of New Zealand in 1971. He was never asked to coach Wales. This hurt him deeply. As Flanetli coach in 1972, James encouraged the players to express themselves because he believed that the All Blacks were vulnerable out wide, but finally, as he always did, he left it up to them to decide. As it turned out, Glenetley's match against the All Blacks was too precious and too freighted with emotion for the Glenetley players to try anything too adventurous or dynamic. They might even have been cowed by their townsfolk's expectations, 26,000 of whom packed Strady Park that drab weekday afternoon to watch the red of their homeboys take on the all-black of the all-blacks. In interview, Bennett later said that the atmosphere in the town was eerie on the morning of the match. He remembers going down to the newsagents to buy the papers 
and encountering Klenechli fans in the street. The expectation was so palpable you could feel it on your skin. It was as though something great was about to be born. People spoke in whispers. It was a kind of sacred hush across the entire town. The only try of the match happened through a slice of good luck. In the first half, Bennett stepped up from about 40 metres out, with the post slightly to his left as he looked at them, to give a penalty kick to Klenechli a good hearty whack. The ball was well struck and seemed to be just creeping over the crossbar, but it hit the crossbar instead. The ball bounced into the field of play, where it was gathered by Lynn Colling, the all-black scrum half. Colling took a fraction of a second too long with his clearance kick, and it was charged down by Roy Bergiers, the Klenechli centre, who only had to run a couple of metres before he scored. Bennett was successful with the conversion. All-black fullback Joe Carum scored a first-half penalty for the visitors to inch things back as the match rumbled one way across the halfway line, then another. At half-time, the home side led 6-3, in those days tries being worth four. The Klenechli line couldn't be breached in the second half, and a spectacular upset it turned out to be. Bennett began to receive some decent ball. He pinned the All Blacks back, turning them around as he kicked into the corners. They became frustrated, frustrated with Bennett and frustrated with themselves, frustrated with the referee, frustrated with the cosmic unfairness of the world. They'd only played once in the British leg of the tour up until then, a romp against western counties in Gloucester, and weren't used to the standard of opposition. Later in the half, Andy Hill, Glenetley's left wing, kicked a second-half penalty to make it 9-3 to the home side. All but a handful of the 26,000 Stradie Park fans bit their lips, bit their fingernails, kept on looking at their watch, resenting that they were submitting to the tyranny of time. Eventually, after a second half that seemed to the Klanechli faithful like a third half, the referee blew the final whistle. The home side had protected their lead. They ran out 9-3 winners. Klanechli tackled like Trojans in a brutal end-to-end match. They might not have played entertaining rugby that drab day in Wales, but the Klanechli players and James learned something priceless, that the famous All Blacks could occasionally be beaten by a club team. Rugby was an altogether more brutal and hurly-burly affair back then. Lineouts, with wings often throwing the ball into lineouts one-handed, were only a step or two away from a fully-fledged bar brawl. Rucks and mauls were a form of hand-to-hand combat. Rucking really was mountaineering on the opposition forwards' backs. Tackling was often dangerously high. By today's sometimes overzealous standards, refereeing looked non-existent. There were no television replays and there was seldom much communication between a referee who believed he was the master of all he surveyed and his touch judges. Their role was basically that of traffic policemen. They patrolled the touchline, looked neat and raised the occasional flag. When the final whistle was blown, Delmi Thomas, the Klenechli skipper, was carried off the field shoulder high. There was shouting. There were tears. Fans flooded into the Klenechli dressing room. Quote, Can I have the mud off your boots? A fan asked Bennett, known to his Klenechli mates as Benny. Another wanted Bennett's laces. 
everyone wanted to grab a little piece of history that last day of October in 1972. It was, Bennett later said, bedlam in the change room. Klinechli hooker Roy Thomas, who had endured a torrid afternoon at the hands of the rucking all-black forwards, particularly their infamous prop, Keith Murdoch, took a chair into the shower. He turned on the shower and sat down, in full kit. He had much to reflect on, the victory in Murdoch's thuggery and much besides. Inspired by the all-black haka at the beginning of the match, he'd clapped out of respect. James cornered him afterwards. Quote, Roy, you don't clap. That night the pubs, the Masons, the Black Lion, the Thomas Arms, ran drive beer, and this in a town with two breweries. Later they ran drive everything. Some of the Klinechli heroes were escorted home in the early hours of the morning by the local police. Many of the Klinechli players took the rest of the week off. In a proud town devoted to steel manufacture and heavy industry, production ground to a halt. Bennett's kick and Klinechli's victory against the All Blacks at Strady Park started a memorable winter for the frail fly-half with feet as slick as Fred Astaire's. James stressed in his talks prior to the All Black game that they were vulnerable out wide, but Klinechli weren't able to fully test James's hypothesis. Come the new year at Cardiff Arms Park, in a fixture meant to be that little bit more freewheeling, and it was the ideal opportunity to test if what James said in the Strady Park dressing room was true. Bennett decided that Cardiff Arms Park stage was as good as any to try. Several other Klinechli players joined James as coach and Bennett as fly half in the Barbarians' squad, including J.P.R. Williams, Flanker David and Locke Quinnell, who played at 8th Man that late January day. Klinechli teammate Bergiers was on the bench for the Barbars, and the Klinechli men took the memory of their defeat of the All Blacks before Christmas out with them onto the Arms Park turf. For those who like their statistics and a sense of closure they bring, the final score between the Barbarians and the All Blacks that cold January day in Cardiff 50 years ago was 23-11 to the Barbars. In a greater sense, though, the score was irrelevant, for the match provided a showstopper try, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, in the history of international rugby. It was entirely appropriate that it was suggested by James. James never ordered his players to do anything, begun by Bennett, finished by Edwards, and described by Morgan, the Big Welsh Four. The Big Welsh Four. The grand old man of the commentary booth, McLaren, had his say too. Many years later, he uttered these famous words, quote, They say over in Strady that if you ever get to catch Phil Bennett, you get to make a wish. How the All Blacks must have wished they caught Bennett earlier that winter's day in Cardiff. If they had... Dawes would never have made that break, Quinnell would never have made that catch, and Edwards would never have scored that try. The story of Strady and the 34 seconds that shook the rugby world at the Arms Park early the following year has a postscript. Murdoch, the all-black prop, ran amuck against Glenetley. He was lucky not to be sent off. His foul play continued as the all-blacks tour of Great Britain and France rolled through November the team management became concerned. 
On December the 2nd, 1972, slightly more than a month after Flanagan's famous victory, Wales played the All Blacks at Cardiff Farms Park, the first of the four home unions to do so. The All Blacks won the game 1916, with Wales unable to achieve what Flanagan had done. How Schadenfreude must have pulsed through James's veins. For Wales, Bevan scored a try, while Murdoch scored one for the All Blacks. But by now the Murdoch matter was getting out of hand. The home nations were concerned about his continuing foul play and apparently brought pressure upon the New Zealanders to do something about it. One story has it that in celebratory mood, after the all-black victory against Wales, Murdoch chased a barmaid through the all-black hotel because she refused to open the bar after closing time. The Welsh police had got wind of this and told the all-black management they would arrest Murdoch unless they did something about it. Whatever the wares and the wherefores, whether there was a barmaid or a brawl, Murdoch was bundled away from Cardiff on a train to London. He caught a plane to Singapore, and from there was meant to catch a connection back to Auckland in New Zealand. Only this didn't happen. Murdoch flew to Perth in Western Australia instead. From there he disappeared into the bush. Over the years, sightings of him were occasional. He was spotted working on an oil rig. He returned to New Zealand where he worked on a farm. He once saved a child from drowning, applying mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. But the old Murdoch anger remained, an anger that had followed him around the world. In 2001, in Tennant Creek, a small town south of Darwin in Australia's inhospitable Northern Territory, an Aboriginal man, Christopher Kumanjai Limerick allegedly broke into the home in which Murdoch and others were living. Limerick was to be taught a lesson and was later found at the bottom of a nearby mine. The post-mortem showed signs of assault which weren't congruent with a fall down a mine shaft. Murdoch was later apprehended by Northern Territory Police on a remote cattle station some distance from Tennant Creek. He gave evidence in court that was criticised by the coroner for being cavalier. The case was dismissed for lack of evidence. Murdoch died 17 years later, the man rugby forgot, in the western Australian town of Carnarvon, north of Perth. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I release a new episode every Saturday at 10.30 a.m. South.